Listen to the word of the Lord, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. And so, dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to give your bodies to God because of all he has done for you. Let them be a living and holy sacrifice, the kind he will find acceptable. This is truly the way to worship him. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. Then you will learn to know God's will for you, which is good and pleasing and perfect. I'm going to reread verse 2. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world. How does your translation read? Louder. Don't be conformed to this world. Don't copy the behavior and customs of this world, but what? But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to what's normal, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. God's always moving us in two directions at the same time. He's always moving us to be different. He's always moving us away from. He's always pulling us apart. And he's always doing it in order to connect us more fully to people. He's always doing these two things at the same time. Now, they look from our perspective to be in contradiction to each other. But from his perspective, it doesn't look that way. He's always causing us to to come away and be separate. And he's always doing that in order to give us back for the sake of. So when it comes to the world, the saints, we're we're not called to conform We're not called to let gravity dictate. And by the way, the world is not something you have to um, go out into society to learn. If we intended to say, we're going to get rid of worldliness, we're going to create an alternate society, and we're going to buy a piece of land, we're going to make tall walls around it, and we're going to make sure that everything in it is Christian. Worldliness, in the real sense, would go right there with us. We'd have our Bible verses and everything. But what is worldliness? Some of us have grown up in a, in a church context where we thought worldliness was secular music or wearing certain clothing or watching certain movies. And so holiness then was just avoiding those things. But that's not worldliness. That's just culture. Worldliness is selfishness. Worldliness is greed. Worldliness is thinking of yourself exclusively, instead of thinking of others first. Holiness isn't avoiding a a set of rules or a a set of behaviors that are on the no-no list and doing a certain things that are on on the the do list. Holiness is love. Primarily, the first thing holiness is, is love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. So, Holiness 
is about attitudes and desires even more than it is about outward actions. Now, you can't separate desire from action, can you? It's not possible. In fact, you will do what you most want to do every time. You will not be able to sustain obedience without delight. In fact, when you fall out of delight and into duty, Scripture would point out that you have fallen out of the normal gospel and into the old covenant. The old covenant is an external set of shoulds and oughts. The new covenant is an internal relationship of the heart that's fueled by the beauty of the grace of Jesus. So when we're talking about not being conformed to the pattern of the world, we are talking about being ruled by love on purpose. Because the gravity of every human heart will to become will to be to, to drift to become something other than love. Self-preservation, self-gratification, these things rule us unless we do what this scripture says, which is to renew the mind. Now, you, this, is so, this, is, this to me is really hopeful. If you want to transform your heart, you renew your mind. Amen. And we do have the ability to choose what we ingest in our mind. We do have the ability to choose what we dwell on and return to habitually. Renew the habits with, with better habits, and eventually the heart will follow. Because why? Feelings are built on beliefs. It's, like, it's high time we start to take responsibility for our feelings. Like, the world needs something better than a vulnerable church and a, and a, and a transparent church. The world needs a transformed church. Amen. We can find people who are honest about how crappy their lives are in the world. What we need is to be so transformed that when you cut us open and we are transparent and vulnerable, you find something that's love. Something that's actually re- recognizably Jesus. I think it's interesting that in the beginning of the book of Acts you find that Luke says, in my former book, which is the Gospel of Luke, in my former book, Theophilus, I wrote to you about all that Jesus began to do and teach. And then you read the book of Acts, and it's all about what the church does. But in Luke's mind, it's a continuation of all that Jesus is doing. How can this be? Apparently, the church filled with the Holy Spirit is the ongoing expression of Jesus in the world. It's why we're called the body of Christ. It's not just a fun metaphor. We, we say we're his hands and feet. We're a lot more than that. We're his eyes and his ears and his nose and his mouth and his neck and his shoulders and his arms and legs and his stomach and his back. We're all of it. And he's the head of this body. So the thing is, again, to not be conformed to the pattern of the world, we have to come apart and be separate and drink from something different from what we drink when we're in the world. We have to intentionally pursue this transforming relationship with love so that from the inside out, 
not from the outside in, we experience God's goodness and love. See, this thing is about joy. We're called to be, we're called to be more unique, more of an individual. See, it's interesting. You go to school as a little kid, and first thing that happens is if you stand out, what happens? They make fun of you. If you're unique, you get squashed. It's called tall poppy syndrome. It, you know, the flower that is taller is the one that gets chopped off. And so when, we, when we're little, it's a little easier to be unique. Then when we encounter the disapproval of people, we start to become adept at finding ways to get people to like us. And because we're less than love, we start to become experts at helping people become how we want them to be in relation to us. <laughs> we become adept at manipulation grudge-holding, and using kindness even as a weapon to get people on our side or on our agenda. But when we encounter Jesus, we encounter something radically different, and it's weird. It feels weird. It feels like shooting basketball left-handed feels to me, or right-handed is for other people who are left-handed. It feels awkward to be loved the way he loves us. It feels weird to have him affirm and love us and accept us on our worst day instead of on our best day. It feels weird to be able to receive his love on a day where I messed up just as much as on a day when I did well. It feels weird that that my best efforts to please him, if they're rooted in the wrong things, I don't get any credit. Isn't that weird? My wife can't tell my motives. She'll reward my efforts if she believes my motives are pure. The Lord sees through all the nonsense. It's a different game. See, the Lord resists the proud and gives grace to the humble, which is why in Luke 18 you have the guy who's tithing and obedient and seemingly faithful and doing all the stuff he's supposed to be doing, and he's like, whew, man, I am God, God, I'm so grateful that I'm not like that train wreck over there. And the train wreck is legitimately, he really is a train wreck. He's over here going, I've messed up everything. Help, have mercy on me. And Jesus says, this guy actually went home under the favor of God. And this guy, he went home thinking he was under the favor of God. He made up favor. He declared favor over himself, but it was only his invention and it wasn't God's. Because what? God gives grace to the humble and he resists the proud. This, this guy outwardly was doing better than this guy. God is all about desires. He's all about attitudes. He's all about intentions. He's all about motives. He's all about the heart. So to be transformed in the secret place of what we actually think, what we actually want, what we actually believe. If you transform, you renew the mind, you transform the heart. Jesus put it this way. If if you'll just continue in my word... If you'll, just, if you'll just hold fast to this thing through thick and thin, then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. Actually, I missed a step, didn't I? If you'll continue in my word, then you'll be my disciples for real. And then you'll know the truth, and the truth will make you free. See, it's not the truth we affirm. A lot of us have doctrine we don't really believe, and you know we don't really believe it because it hasn't transformed our hearts yet. Right? You don't don't believe what you say you believe. You believe what your life fruits out as evidence. Right? Just like I had a friend, Adam Bauer, and he said he had a dream. And in this dream, 
this guy was ranting and raving about the importance of building your house on the rock. And all the while, he was standing next to a house he was building on the sand. And, and he, said, he said, in the dream, he was like, dude, what are you doing? And he was like, you never want to build your house on the sand. You always want to build your house on the rock. See, because if you build your house on the rock, you actually, you know what's even worse in real life than building your house on sand is building your, building your house on clay. And then the clay will expand with water and it'll break your foundation of your house. But rock is superior. Rock is superior. It's funny, I heard a, a, uh, an engineer talking about, man, Je- Jesus really knew what he was talking about. I'm like, yeah, you know, he's kind of like, you shocked by that, bro? You know. But in Adam's dream, this man was all the while excitedly affirming the idea of building your house on the rock. But right behind him was his house on the sand. And he just, he loved the idea. The idea was awesome. But he clearly didn't believe it. He liked talking about it, but didn't believe it. Yeah, and so Adam, of course, Adam's one of my, he's a powerful, powerful voice of no nonsense. When, when he came, that, he, he hit us with the whole idea of, you don't believe it unless you're living it. Period. The end. Excuses are, are pretty much laid aside. Complicated explanations are laid aside. So God is calling us to be so different from the world as the church. But now, there's another sense in which God is calling us to be different. If you were to turn to 1 Corinthians 12 and read verse 7, it would say, Now to each of us is given a manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. A unique manifestation of the Spirit. Then he goes on to talk about each part of the body is totally unique. And because each part of the body is unique, it, it, it means that there's going to be a set of challenges. The challenge of another kind of conformity that comes in. Another kind of comparison that comes in. It's actually worldliness in the church yet again. We look around and we say, no one else is like me, so I'm not valid. Or we look around and we say, you aren't how you should be because you aren't like me. And we're not talking morally, okay? Morally, no one in the church is called to be conformed to the pattern of the world, which is selfishness. We're called to be conformed to Jesus, every one of us. We're called to be filled with the same spirit of Jesus, but the same spirit of Jesus that causes Carl to think like an evangelist causes me to think like a preacher, or whatever I am, who knows, like a wild donkey. That's what the Lord told me. Was, that's a whole sermon I want to preach one of these days, is where the Lord scared the tar out of me by calling me a wild donkey. And I panicked, as I said, I know, I'm terrible. And he, and he knew, he knew that he was saying something biblical that was not culturally available to me, and he was okay with that. He was okay with me having to take three months and do research before I figured out the cultural framework from which he was speaking. He was okay with me living in tension and panic. You know, next time when he says something I don't understand, I'll be less inclined to panic. But when the same spirit that's conforming us to this thing of love comes into us, he comes with gifts. And now how does that work? You know what, we call it an anointing for service, right? This charismatic lingo, it's actually biblical lingo. It's a grace on our life. Now how does that grace take fruit in our life? One of the most helpful things I've read on this is a little, a little book by Harold Eberly where he talked about the, the wineskin that Jesus has 
is trying to bring to us, and it's from Ephesians chapter 4, but what, what Harold said was, a gift is really a Holy Spirit-prompted mindset. A, a set of patterns in your thinking that enable you to fulfill a specific set of responsibilities in the body of Christ. So you're not going to think like the people around you as you're seeking this, this common Jesus. I like to picture the church sometimes like a stained glass window that is, is kind of like pointillism. I know this is the wrong image. You can't mix pointillism and stained glass, but just go with me. Imagine a stained glass window that's made up of these little individual uh, shapes of color. And if you come up too close, it doesn't look like anything. It just looks like different random shades of color all around each other. But if you back up, you see the face of Jesus. That's how I picture the church. That if you look at each individual, you go, I don't know what God's doing here. But if you'll back up and you get a, a bird's eye view, you'll see Jesus. And if you try to get everyone to be the same shape and the same color, it won't look like Jesus at the end of the day. But there's a couple more things I want to say about this thing of we're always being called away to be more unique. And we're, all on, and we're always being drawn in to be more connected. It says each one is given... A manifestation of the Spirit for what? For the common good. This is really interesting. I've noticed uh, that lately in shows, television shows, music, media, a theme that has a good intuition about it, but an application falls short of what the gospel wants to bring us. I've noticed a theme of love yourself, accept yourself, believe in yourself, Dare to be different. And it's good, but what I've noticed is there's something brittle about it. It's love yourself for the sake of self. It's embrace what's unique about you, including what's broken about you in the wrong ways. And not necessarily for the sake of others. The gospel provides us with an individuality that never becomes selfishness. It's always God making a person who is whole so that they can manifest Jesus in relationships. Are we tracking? It's not me in a me pursuit. It's me in a Jesus pursuit. And he is shaping and crafting and making me a whole person. Now this process of becoming more ourselves... Psychologists call it individuation. Have I lost you with a big word? In individuation, a little kid starts to form their own beliefs rather than just accepting what mom and dad say. They start to form their own values rather than just saying, well, whatever mom and dad say is true. Their personality begins to come out in in a way where they're beginning to own it as a good thing, not all just, I'm weird. Of course you're weird. We're all weird. It's a good thing. But in individuation, sometimes you have a, a, a person who's, who's got to make almost a clean break from their home or from their family or even from their tribe in order to fully own their own direction in life, their own internal moral compass. And a person who's really, really mature is able to maintain their compass while in the presence of the group. 
A person who's really mature has developed the ninth fruit of the Holy Spirit, which is self-control. A person who has developed self-control and a deep-rooted identity in Christ is able to delay their responses even when their reactions are going crazy. A person of self-control is able to act according to the principles that they truly believe in, even when the group around them is persecuting them or mislabeling them. A person of deep maturity is able to withdraw back to themselves those fleshly projections we naturally put on other people where we judge their motives, we presume to know what's in their heart, we tell ourselves a story about what they believe and what they think and how they are, a person of deep maturity is able to withdraw those stories and realize that's probably just coming from me toward them. In other words, a person of deep maturity, individuality, who's whole, is able, like Jesus, when the crowds are clamoring for you to do this and this and this, You're able to withdraw, spend a night in prayer, and then come back with a decision that you got from the Father. In Mark chapter 1, I believe it's verse 35, it says the disciples are all clamoring for Jesus because the momentum is starting. He's healed some people, and now there's crowds coming, and it's exciting. They're looking for Jesus because this is finally working, and they try to find him, and where is he? He's off by himself in prayer, and when he comes back from prayer, he says, yeah, I don't care what the people say. It's time to go. What do you mean it's time to go? There's a crowd. We're all looking for you. No, I'm called to go preach to the other cities now. Or it's Luke chapter 5, verse 16 that says that Jesus often withdrew to lonely places to pray. Why? Because he didn't like people? No, he loved people. And it says, and Jesus, Luke chapter 6, spent the night alone with the Father, all night, praying. And then he called the disciples to him and name the twelve. You could look at that superficially and be like, oh, Jesus got up before dawn and prayed. Oh, Jesus stayed up all night and prayed. We're not allowed to go to bed ever. Just pray all the time. We should do it. Or you could realize, no, that's not what the point is. The point is, he had a moral center. He had a, he had a compass inside of him. He had an individual whole identity. We're in union with his father he was able to stand against and stand apart. And it was never selfish. It was the only thing that kept his sacrifice for the world serving with integrity. One of my favorite uh, people in the the Catholic Church is a a monk named Thomas Merton. How many of y'all heard of Thomas Merton? Not many, okay. Go read some Seven Story Mountain. It's fantastic. Thomas Merton grew up in the, the, the last century this is, as he's a youngster in the 20s and 30s, he was really becoming interested in how do you solve the brokenness of society. First, he started out just as a regular person in the world, you know, drinking and carousing and going after girls and, and just fun and working different jobs and traveling and getting a lot of experiences. But something was wrong. Then he began, began to be in touch with, with society is broken. So then he came to the idea that he needed to help fix society, that there was things needed to change, and he became a bit of a socialist for a while. But at the end of the day, he realized that his desire to help the world was actually rooted more in anger and idealism than anything sustainable. 
And he noticed the trend that people would get, in, get involved in trying to bring about social transformation. It was all about what's wrong with others and camping out and trying to point out what's wrong. And there was this angry justice vibe and it would always burn out. Except he found some, some Catholics who were working on behalf of the poor and on behalf of women. And there was something different about them. And when he got to know them better, he realized that what was different about them was a deep and abiding faith in Jesus. And so through that, he began to see, maybe there's a better way. Maybe there's a better way. And somehow or other, he found himself investigating a monastery. I mean, a monastery. This is people who have said, I've taken a vow of celibacy. I'm not going to marry. I've taken a vow of poverty. I'm not going to own anything. And I'm going to live in this community, and that will be my vocation. And to us Protestants, we look at monks and nuns as essentially hiding in a corner, praying and wasting their lives. But not Thomas. Thomas discovered a monastery of Cistercians who hardly spoke to each other. Or was it Trappists? The Lord knows. Monks who hardly spoke. And when he discovered them, he felt as though he had found the secret to why the world had not yet descended into chaos. He said, oh, I finally get it. The prayers of these people, they're at peace. They're not pursuing career and ego and self and status and all the stuff. Endless acquisition of goods and resources and quest for power over people and each other in comparison. They're not wasting their life in this rat race. They've just, they're just seeking Jesus and living their life for, I want this. He viewed these people over here farming their own food, having regular prayers seven times a day, confession, and living in community, and doing good for the world in small ways that were quiet as the salt preserving society and keeping chaos at bay. And he joined them. But it was never enough solitude. He always felt more and more called to solitude. It was, he always felt more and more called to solitude. I feel a, a kindred spirit with Thomas. Whenever I'm in a season where I'm on fire, there's a phrase that runs through my soul. And it's this phrase. Shut up much with God in prayer. I know I don't, it doesn't, I'm not saying shut up. I'm saying cloistered in with the presence for hours in worship, in adoration, in enjoyment, in contemplation, in meditation. And that's not for everyone. That's probably not your call. But me and Thomas, when we go alone, we go on your behalf and we come out with something to give you. And if we don't, we get worn and frail, and frayed, and our compass gets all haywire. So he goes off and he says to his little group, I'm still too much with people. I feel like I'm wasting my life too much with people. So they, they grant him a special dispensation, because they are rules people, man. Like monks and nuns, they follow rules. I was talking to these uh, Orthodox nuns, and I said, Who, how did you, why did you pick the name you did? And the one lady said, oh, I, don't, I didn't pick my name. My mother superior picked my name. We have radical surrender. She chose the name that she thought fit, fit my calling the best. Whew. 
man, sometimes those older churches grasp the mystery and the wisdom of humble submission and the freedom we find from what's really wrong with us better than we Protestants do. Anyway, so Thomas got a special dispensation to live more alone in a cabin in the woods. Now, in that cabin in the woods, he responded to letters and he labored over his typewriter and he wrote meditations and ideas and thoughts. And he was actually fully engaged in what was happening in our culture. He became a a loud pacifist voice in the middle of the Vietnam War. He became a spiritual anchor for those who were drawn toward activism in a way that was making their spirits angry and brittle. And he, Thomas Merton, alone in the woods, became one of the most influential voices to shape a generation. Alone in the woods. Weird, right? Now, I'm not saying you're called out to the woods to a typewriter. But I'm saying that when God calls us, he calls us to come away and be separate and be different, both from the culture morally, but we're even called to be different from the congregation we're in in terms of our special emphasis. Now, one question I would have is, how are you going to find your contribution? You know what I would encourage you to do as you're trying to find your contribution if you don't know what it is? Try everything. If you know that we don't exist for ourselves, but we've got grace from Jesus that's for the common good, then you know we're called to serve each other in love. Try everything. Sometimes you'll be surprised what there's grace for you to do that you didn't expect to be, find passion in it. And I don't think it's as simple as saying, do what you're good at. I wish it were that simple. Because there's some things you're good at that you're not called to. But if you're not called to them, you won't have passion. You won't have enduring desire for them. And if you don't have enduring desire for them, you won't be able to be faithful to them for the long haul. So the thing we have to seek, after we've learned to say no to sin and self, ironically, is our highest joy. The danger in the church is that we start to do things more out of duty than out of joy. And it erodes everything. Now, whatever you do, don't do nothing. Do you know what I'm saying? Whatever you do, don't do nothing. Get on the hunt for your calling. There's a book I'm reading because of a wonderful recommendation by Mark Batterson. And he says when Mark, Mark says, he's a pastor in New York, uh, not New York City, Washington, D.C. And he says when church planners come to him and they bring him this, you know, this data, this information, this research they've done for where they want to plant their church. And they've got all the data for where there's a need for a new church. Here's the needs. Here's the data points. Here's the brokenness in families. Here's the, here's the brokenness in the, in the infrastructure. Here's the crime rates. Here's the poverty rates. We want to get in there. We want to, we want to care. We want to care about people. We're going to bring, be salt. And he looks at the demographic data, and he just looks at them, and he goes, I don't care about any of this. Where does your heart want most to live? And they look at him like, what does that matter? It's not about us. It's all about Jesus. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Where do you most want to live? Do you want to live in the mountains? Do you want to live in the plains? Do you want to live on the coast? Do you want to live in the suburbs? Do you want to live in the city? Where do you want to live? Do you feel called to the down and outers? Do you feel called to the up and outers? Do you feel called to the everyday Joes? What do you, who do you, where do you feel like, what does your heart imagine you living happily for the rest of your life? 
And they go, why does that matter? And he goes, I'm 100% convinced that if you will serve God in the place your heart most wants to and longs to, you'll do it with excellence for the long haul. But if you try to do something other than that, you might be able to sustain excellence for brief periods of time, but you will burn out. One of the things we fail at when we jump to do something that we think is God is we, we, we jump way too quick. We jump way too quick. There's a mood in a service and we go, oh, yes, I'm in. Or someone talks to us and we get a little inspired. And we go, oh, it's God, I'm in. Sometimes we got to slow down and figure out what desires are enduring over the course of 20, 30, 40 years. And pursue those things. I mean, really pursue them and don't back down until we find them. All right, I've said a lot. I'm probably out of time, but God is always calling us apart to make us more who he's uniquely created us to be. And he's doing that so that he can always be connecting us more fully to others to serve them in love. That's always happening. And again, looks contradictory from from our perspective. Those things look like they're at odds, but from his perspective, they're not remotely at odds. And I don't know how to say this the right way, but Psalm 1611 says, In your presence is fullness of joy. God's the happiest being that ever existed or ever will. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. If you aren't hunting joy, you're already off the path. It's disobedience to not seek your own joy in God. And I hate to say it that way. That's like a, a, a brash kind of way to put it. But, but if, if you have ceased seeking joy. Okay, let me, I'm going to say it this way. You know, in 1 John, I know I said I was done, but I, I, just a few more. Just, just give, me, give me a minute. 1 John, if, if you say you love God, but you don't love people made in his image, you don't love God, right? Hang with me, people. So we love God precisely as much as the human we love the least. Are you with me? It's hard to get away from that if you take that Bible verse seriously, right? In a similar way, in a similar way, the extent to which your life glorifies God is directly proportional to how happy you are in God. Yes, I'm right. And instead of getting defensive and changing the topic, we need to accept that and let his word transform our mind, to transform our heart, to become his body in the world that looks like he looks and behaves like he behaves. And we didn't do it. He did it living through us. Because we've put ourselves in the flow of letting his beauty be the biggest thing in our, in our, our eyes, the eyes of our heart can see. All right, let's pray. Uh, And as we're praying, prayer team, come forward.